Did you get it all done today? Okay, while everybody's coming in here, let's go over a couple of announcements. Uh, probably the most uh, uh, important one is we have had some really, really good news today in terms of the Good News Club that we're going to be having at Cedarbrook Elementary, and our, tomorrow is our first day. And when we initially uh, laid down the groundwork for this, we thought there would be about 35 or 40 kids that signed up. Well, we have 105. So that is uh, that's more kids than Preston City Bible Church had at their vacation Bible school, and that's more kids than that's more kids than we have. That's more kids than uh, you know. Dan Ingram's church, National Capital Bible Church, runs three or four uh, Good News Clubs, and it's more than all of theirs combined. So we're just knocking it all out in one Good News Club. So that's more kids than we have show up on Sunday morning. So adults show up on Sunday morning. So we need to be in prayer. And anybody who would like to help out, we still need volunteers. The, the, the rule was that with about 35 or 40, I think we needed about 10 or 12 uh, folks to help out. Now, Mark Friedrich's going to do the teaching. I think somebody else is going to teach the songs. And uh, there's two or three other things related to teaching. But outside of that, there's just a need to have other adults present, uh, sort of for order, disciplinary purposes, but also at some point breaking the kids up into smaller groups so they can just work on learning their, their Bible verses and, and, um, and that kind of a thing. So it's not like it requires a commitment or preparation or anything of that nature as much as it just involves being being there to help out. And hurting those kids, we have to be responsible for getting them to the front of the school afterwards and um, and that kind of a thing. And so it's just important to have some, some adult bodies around. So that's something to pray for for tomorrow, that that will go well. And there are a lot of Hispanic kids there. I'm not sure how many of them will be saved. There's a lot of kids there I know from because uh, Pam teaches school there. Uh, there are a lot of kids there I know that are saved, and that's good. But there's also... A lot of kids that are going to be coming from some backgrounds where they may not have heard of a solid free grace gospel, and they're going to need to uh, hear that the only way to salvation is through accepting Christ, not works. So that's going to be really important, and this is just a tremendous opportunity opportunity that we have. Uh, it's a good good witness out in the community. As far as other announcements go, just a reminder about the uh, the Thanksgiving luncheon on the twenty. What would that be? The twenty fourth, twenty fourth, and then also that there won't be Bible class Thursday night. There won't be Bible class on uh, the following Tuesday night, the second or third. Just since all y'all are here. Uh, and and just to give a little feedback, one of the questions that came up with the deacons at the last couple of deacons meetings was that Christmas this year is on a Wednesday. Now, I know there's a certain number of people who have their family traditions on Tuesday or on Christmas Eve night, and um, other people don't. And so I sort of have the question of, wait a minute, plug that back in. Did you change it? Okay. 
Well, wait a minute. It's only showing up on one, not the other one. It's There we go. And uh, so <clears throat> since you all normally show up on Tuesday night, most of you do, my question is, and you can think about it, you can let the deacons know, but my question is uh, how many of you would uh, probably not be here on Tuesday night, Christmas Eve? You're probably not even going to be in town. <laughs> What's the question to ask? Well, I, I thought I would approach it the other way, and everybody, nobody raised their hand that they wouldn't be here, so everybody else would probably be here. But that's what we're thinking about having is a Christmas Eve service, not a regular Bible class, probably something a little, a uh, little more oriented to observance of Christmas, and a, and probably uh, have a Christmas uh, communion, Christmas Eve communion service. So. Uh, give us some feedback on that. Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure we're ready, spiritually prepared to study the Word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful that we've had such a response from these kids at Cedarbrook for the Good News Club tomorrow, and we pray that, that things will go well, that you'll, uh, uh, first day, there's always a lot of confusion, things get a little bit uh, <clears throat> disorganized just due to unfamiliarity. We pray things will go well. We pray that the, thing, that the kids would be attentive. We pray that uh, the, the, the hearing of your word would find a reception in these kids and they would respond to it and that we'd have a really tremendous opportunity to uh, communicate the truth of your word to these kids and that they would, uh, this would make a tremendous difference in their lives. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity. Father, we're also mindful that there are folks in this congregation who are facing uh, life-threatening diseases, and, Father, we pray for them. We lift them up, their caregivers up, their families, and we pray that as they go through these battles that, that they might be an effective witness uh, both to their families as well as to uh, others that uh, minister to them and others that help them and those in the medical community that are around them uh, to the effectiveness of your grace. We pray this evening as we study your word that we might uh, come to understand these things and, and be challenged by the principles that we see here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, where we're coming to the conclusion of Paul's third missionary journey. So we've gone through the three missionary journeys, and at, at this time Paul wrote how many epistles at the, uh, after the first missionary journey? One. First missionary journey, he wrote one. That was Galatians. Second missionary journey, he wrote two. And that was, they were first and second Corinthians. Third missionary journey, he wrote three, and um, 
and he, he writes, or excuse me, I was confused there. Second missionary journey wrote two, first and second Thessalonians. Third missionary journey, he writes three. They are first and second Corinthians and Romans. So there we ha- have at this point, he's written uh, six of his, uh, of his epistles. And so we ha- we're laying the groundwork for the New Testament already. Now he comes to, he's going to come to Jerusalem and it, he is on his way there. So we start off in verse 1, now it came to pass, this is when he is leaving uh, Miletus on his way back, he's been up here, here's the map, he's here at Miletus where he had a meeting with the Ephesian elders, and he's going to leave, and he's going to go, this is the route that he's taking from Kos uh, to Rhodes to Patera, and then bypassing Cyprus, they're on a direct, direct route uh, no stops, uh, no change of planes, no more change of ships. They're on their direct route into Tyre. He's in a hurry because he wants to make it to uh, Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. Missed Passover, and he's on his way there for Pentecost. So we read that he came to pass it when uh, we had departed. Now notice the we indicating that Luke, the author of Acts, is traveling with him. This is important because Luke ends the we section uh, as we get into chapter, uh, chapter towards the end of chapter 21. So apparently uh, Luke wasn't with him the entire time. Uh, incidentally, this time in Israel when Luke is not with Paul is very likely the time when Luke is going out and traveling around and interviewing eyewitnesses of the life of Christ and putting his materials together in writing the gospel of Luke. So I came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail running a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes. It's about 40 miles or so to Kos, about 60 to Rhodes, and about another 60 to Patera. And so they stopped there and they changed ships. And it seems that the reason they did was because they wanted to get one that was making a direct uh, setting a direct course for Tyre so that they could get to Jerusalem as quickly as possible. So verse two, 2 says they found a ship sailing over to Phoenicia. We went aboard and set sail. So this would be their route. Verse 3 states that when they had sighted Cyprus, they passed it on the left and sailed on to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. Now, the process of unloading the cargo and then loading new cargo was going to take would take some time, so they would spend seven days entire, and that's described in verses four through six. In those seven days entire, there's going to be another warning given to Paul about going to Jerusalem. Now, this is the controversial warning. I want to remind you that we've already seen a couple of verses that are very clear that Paul, under the leading ministry, the guiding ministry of God the Holy Spirit, uh, is directed to go to Jerusalem. He is, uh, you may have heard some uh, say otherwise, but we'll get into that material as we uh, explore this passage. So in verse 4 we read, and finding disciples. So there's a congregation there entire. Founding disciples, we stayed there for seven days, or there for a week, 
and they, that would refer to the disciples, that apparently there were some among them that had the gift of, of a prophecy. Now remember, in the early church, revelatory gifts were still operational. Gifts such as the um, uh, gift of apostle was, had a revelatory gift. Uh, prophets uh, received revelation from God, which they passed on to uh, to those who were they were intended for. There were also those who had gifts of knowledge and wisdom, and we really don't know anything more about those gifts than that they are mentioned. And the implication is that they were revelatory. For for the gift of of um, knowledge is mentioned uh, along with uh, prophecy in First <clears throat> Corinthians chapter thirteen, verses eight to thirteen. Uh, as a gift that will be abolished. So these were temporary gifts because the New Testament canon had not been written yet. At this point, we're in the year 57 A.D. Now just think about this a minute. Jesus is crucified in 33. This is when the church is given birth to on the day of Pentecost, which would have been sometime in June of the year uh, 33. And so we have gone 24 years now, and James is the only other New Testament book, possibly Matthew, that have been written other than the six epistles of the Apostle Paul. And the epistles of Paul, which really focus on church-age doctrine, what we sometimes call just the mystery doctrine. Mystery is a term that doesn't describe some sort of something hidden uh, from us, something that we have to uh, uh, <clears throat> gaze at our navels to try to figure out. Uh, mystery is a term that refers to previously unrevealed truth. It was a it was hidden from the Old Testament, from the Jews of the Old Testament, and it relates to the fact that there would be this organism called the Church, the Body of Christ, that would be in existence between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And so there's doctrine that's related to the uh, spiritual life of church-age believers, doctrines related to the church that were not revealed in the Old Testament, and these are primarily revealed in Paul's epistles because Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. There's some in in the Petrine epistles. There's some in in John's epistles, but John's epistles aren't written uh, for, for probably another another 35 or 40 years. So this is very early in, in, in the church, and this is a time when the, when the New Testament books have not been written. How many books are in the New Testament? 27. 27 books are in the New Testament, and we have a possibility of eight that have been written to this point. So that means that there are 19 New Testament books that still haven't been written at this particular point. So there's a need for those who have revelatory gifts to communicate direct revelation and guidance from God to uh, the early church. This is temporary because once the canon is completed, then those gifts would no longer be necessary and they would... Uh, they would uh, be taken off of the scene. This is what's indicated in 1 Corinthians 13.10 uh, when it talks about the fact, the fact that when the perfect comes, that is a term, actually perfect's a bad translation. It says that which is complete. Now, in context, 
Paul has just said in 1 Corinthians 13.8 that uh, prophecy is incomplete, it's partial. And uh, knowledge is incomplete, it's partial. But when that perfect or, or that which completes the idea there with uh, the word perfect could indicate uh, either that which is flawless, that's a qualitative concept. It has no flaws, no uh, failings, no, no errors. Uh, or it can refer to that which completes a quantitative concept. Well, since the context is already talking about two things that are incomplete quantitative concepts, then when you get to verse 10 and introduces the word teleos, it must be taken in context to, to be talking about something that is quantitative. So when the, the that which completes comes, that which is partial or incomplete will be abolished, will be done away with. So the best uh, interpretation of that is... Um, is that the partial refers to the coming of the kingdom. Later on, it's compared to a mirror. The word of God is compared to a mirror also in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 also refers to the law of God in terms of the law of liberty, the word of God, as that which is perfect. So there's a solid exegetical basis for for determining that. So in this period of time, there are temporary gifts and temporary gifts of, that are revelatory, and prophecy is one of them. So in this chapter, we're going to run into uh, some undesignated prophets here. Uh, that is what we find in verse 4. There, probably somebody there had the gift of prophecy. And then we're going to run into another prophet, a known prophet, a named prophet, after verse 10, Agabus. And then we're, or excuse me, I'm on the wrong page, after verse um, 8, We'll run into Agabus in verse, mentioned in verse 10. And then we will also see these four daughters of Philip that are also, uh, also have the gift of prophecy. Now I'm going to bring a new wrinkle into your understanding of the gift of prophecy. But most of us understand it as some sort of revelatory gift in terms of communicating information from God. A lot of people think that prophecy is always about the future. And when you examine the Old Testament books, it's not about the future, except in some cases. It's primarily about uh, prosecuting God's indictment of Israel for their disobedience and their failure to obey him. Uh, when you get into the New Testament, there are some people today, Wayne Grudem is one who is an extremely famous um, uh, uh, writer, theologian. I think he's now the president of Phoenix Seminary, and he has written a book or wrote a book back in the 20s, I'm back in the 20s, back in the 80s, about 20 years ago, on the New Testament gift of prophecy, where he argues it wasn't like the Old Testament gift. You could make mistakes. It was just general. It was... Um, um, it, and 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 he's he's comes out of a vineyard background as well, uh, or holds to a vineyard type theology, which is a charismatic uh, type of theology, and that has been his arguments and everything have been um, uh, influential for a lot of people. And I hesitate; I always sound so uh, arrogant when I say this. People who can't think real clearly, because there are some profound rebuttals to his position that have been published in theological journals. But people tend to read what confirms or validates their own views 
rather than thinking critically and evaluating different arguments and, and different positions. So because of the popularity of the charismatic Pentecostal movement, uh, there are a lot of people who, who tend to think that these things are, are still going on today uh, when they are not. Now let's look at our passage here. Finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul, through the Spirit. Now, I put the Greek here, transliteration. It's the preposition dia plus a genitive form of the noun pneuma, which normally indicates a form of instrumentality. And it's it's an interesting, this gets into some technical grammar, but it's similar to the preposition in plus the dative, although that's a stronger, this would be sort of a secondary type of instrumentality. And so it's important to look at how this phrase is used as opposed to the other phrase. And that's where we're going to, what, what we need to look at. Because Paul has been, um, has, has, we're, we're told under the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit by means of the Holy Spirit, has confirmed and is bound to this to to go to Jerusalem. So it seems at a first reading of twenty one four that these disciples told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. That what that means is they're saying that on the authority of the Holy Spirit uh, that Paul is not to go to Jerusalem, and that seems to contradict clear statements in. Acts 19.21 and Acts 20.22 that Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem was somehow erroneous, that he was carnal, that he was disobedient in going to Jerusalem. And yet the language here is very strong. In Acts 19.21, we read, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed by means of the Spirit, in ta numati, in is the preposition, ta is the article, numati is the dative form of the, of the word pneuma. Same phraseology, same terminology we have in terms of walking by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. Um, so Paul purposed in the Spirit that when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, so it's a very, taken all by itself. It's a very strong statement that Paul is being guided and directed by God the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem at the conclusion of his third missionary journey. In Acts twenty twenty two, he says, "And see, now I go bound in the Spirit." And it's a perfect tense form of that verb to be bound, indicating that he had already been bound. It, it was set. Uh, by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to him. But he has, his, uh, the indication some other verses was already that he was going to face opposition and persecution if he went to Jerusalem. That wasn't going to stop him any more than it was going to stop the Lord Jesus Christ from going to Jerusalem because he was going to face arrest and being brutalized and then being crucified on the cross. The warning was to see and to test Paul to see if he was going to be obedient to the Lord no matter what the cost in going to Jerusalem. Uh, Acts 20.24, he writes, uh, I added this verse because it indicates again 
Paul's mentality. He's, he's focused on serving the Lord. He's not focused on his own agenda. He's not going to Jerusalem for some untoward reason or some carnal reason. He says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So the reason he's going is clearly stated to, to be a witness to the grace of God. Now, he's the apostle to the Gentiles, so someone may say, well, he's going to, to, to the Jews. Well, he's always gone to the Jews. Just because he's an apostle to the Gentiles does not mean he didn't minister to Jews. In fact, he led probably hundreds of Jews to the Lord by virtue of going to synagogues first and then going to to the Gentiles. But we have clear language here that in numity recognizes or in numity emphasizes uh, by means of the Spirit. But that's not the same phrase that we have in uh, in Acts uh, 21.4. There we have the phrase dia plus the genitive, of Numa. Now, if you look at the book of Acts and the verses where that phraseology is used, you can make some interesting observations. In Acts 1-2, uh, Luke is writing, and he's writing about uh, the, giving the introduction to, to the book of Acts. He's talking about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he witnessed until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit. Now, see, English prepositions never are consistent with translating the Greek prepositions. The Greek preposition is dia. After he had, through the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Acts 4.25, talking about... uh, the inspiration of the Old Testament, and Peter is talking, he says, Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and peoples devise a vain thing? Through the Holy Spirit, there is referencing the process of inspiration in, in that particular passage. In Acts 11.28, the first time we run into Agabus in the Old Testament, we see him again in verse 10 in this chapter, uh, Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit or through the Spirit, dia plus a genitive, that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. Again, it's indicating some sort of inspired uh, utterance, some, that, that inspiration is, is going on in that context. Romans 5.5, 5, broadening the context a little bit in our look at the usage of the term, uh, Paul says, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, indicating his uh, intermediate agency there. First uh, Corinthians 2.10, for to us God revealed them through the Spirit. Again, it's used in the context of something revelatory under inspiration. And the same is true in First Corinthians 12.8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, that's revelatory activity taking place through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So what are we to make of all this? Well, let's look at our options. Option number one is that either Luke or the Holy Spirit contradicts himself, that in two passages it's clear that Paul is being led by the Spirit and now these disciples uh, are 
saying the Holy Spirit changed his mind. So there's either a contradiction there, or option two, Paul has misunderstood the guidance of the Spirit, and there are a couple of people, one person I read who said that, and the disciples entire have it right. And option number three, the disciples entire receive the same message Paul has been getting um, about persecution if he goes to Jerusalem, and their reaction is to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now let me explain that, that one a minute. They've received the same information that Paul's received earlier. That is, if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to face persecution and opposition. That's the information they've received. Their reaction to that is to tell Paul, don't go. Now, we get a perfect example of that in just about five verses. If you look down in verse 11, we're just going to skip ahead a little bit. Agabus has come down to Caesarea by the sea, and he he gives a an object lesson to Paul. When he came, and Luke writes, when he came down to us, he took Paul's belt. The word here is a is a wide belt that they would wrap around their tunic, and for a traveler, usually it was a money belt. That's where they carried their uh, carried their money. So he takes Paul's thick uh, money belt uh, and bound his hands and feet. He's giving an object lesson. And he says, that says the Holy Spirit. Don't go to Jerusalem. Oh, wait a minute. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, that says the Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. See, it's the, the message all along has been, you're going to face a lot of opposition. Now, what happens after that? Look at verse verse 12. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Now, as I was studying this, oh, there's a fourth option. That is the disciples entire are just wrong. So either Paul's wrong and they're right, they're, they're, um, they're wrong and Paul's right, or Luke contradicts himself. Now, Option one, we throw out because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's not going to be a contradiction. Option number two is not acceptable because it's very clear that Paul is walking by the Spirit. That terminology is used twice, as a matter of fact, in those two verses that we just looked at. Option, so, so Paul's not misunderstanding the guidance of the Spirit. The fourth option that the disciples entire are wrong I'm not saying that doesn't work either they understand accurately what the Holy Spirit is saying the only option that we have is option three is that they hear the message just like the situation with Agabus they get the message right but they don't want to see Paul go through testing they don't want to see Paul go through persecution so they tell him not to go that's their conclusion. That's their application, as it were, from the message that God uh, that God gave them. Now, last week, as I was preparing for this, I did a search in my in my uh, Logos Bible software. Outside of Logos, I have about uh, at home, at least, I have about six or seven uh, in print books that are uh, commentaries on Acts. In my Logos Bible commentary uh, software, 
I have 53 commentaries on Acts, plus some um, one-volume commentaries on the New Testament or on the Bible uh, that aren't just on Acts itself. So there's probably an additional eight or nine single-volume commentaries, taking us to a total of about 62 commentaries on the book of Acts. Of those 62 commentaries on the book of Acts, only two indicated that Paul was wrong in going to Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting is they only say that. They don't offer any rationale as to why. They just assert it. Paul was wrong because of this verse. They don't go back and try to correlate it to the verses in the previous chapters in Acts 19 or in Acts 20. So the burden of proof in light of Acts 19 uh, that Paul is... um, Purpose this by means of the Spirit, and Acts twenty twenty two that he was bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. The burden of proof is on those who would argue that Paul was wrong. There's nothing in Paul's life at this time to indicate that he's in any frame of reference of any kind of rebellion against God. In fact, he states again and again, both before and after and during this, that he is following uh, following the will the will of God. There's, so there's no clear statement that he is uh, wrong or out of order. So that takes us to uh, understand from our conclusion that option three must be the solution. And what amazed me is that historically, and I didn't do an extensive work on this, I didn't go back and look at every church father and what other comments they make, but Chrysostom, who's called John Chrysostom, who is... Uh, uh, from Syria, Antioch, and later ends up as a pastor in Constantinople. Chrysostom means, is a Greek word for golden mouth. He's considered the greatest orator, uh, in the early church, uh, in the, in the, uh, late fourth, fourth century. He was anti-Semitic, by the way, so he has a, he has a bad side. But he, he clearly states the same position that is a position taken by, uh, 60 of the 62 commentaries that I looked at, and that is that that what happens is that these these disciples understand that Paul is going to go through uh, intense per, uh, opposition and persecution, and their application of that is that Paul should not uh, go to Jerusalem. Same as Luke. See, Luke says in verse 12, when we, that means Luke, that means uh, the others in Paul's entourage, when we heard these things, both we, that is Paul's traveling companions, and those from that place, that is those in Caesarea by the sea, pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul's attitude is completely different. Now, in understanding this this phrase, because it's, it's, this is one of those areas where, where actually Greek doesn't help you a whole lot. Because the, the, unless you're a native speaker, it's going to be very difficult to pick up on the, uh, nuanced differences between, uh, the instrumental use of the preposition in and the instrumental use of the preposition dia. But dia is usually, uh, uh, less so than in. In the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, it has a quite extensive uh, article, I mean, we're talking about 60 pages, 
dealing with all of the different prepositions in the uh, Greek New Testament. And in there we read, and I'm going to read this whole quote to you because this is a difficult passage. You need to understand that that, uh, some of the things that we deal with here in trying to properly understand the Scriptures. Uh, This article states, Dia to Numitas in Acts 21.4 is difficult since the advice not to go on to Jerusalem given to Paul by the Tyrian disciples or prophets through the Spirit conflicted with his own resolve by means of the Spirit in Acts 19.21 and with the constraint and testimony of the Spirit in Acts 20.22, recognition of the problem. It's noteworthy that Agabus's subsequent prophecy at Caesarea in Acts 21.11 that predicts Paul's suffering in Jerusalem and begins, thus says the Holy Spirit, does not include an injunction or exhortation to Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then there's a, see the comparison with Acts 21, uh, 12 through, uh, 12 through 14, which is the reaction I just read to you, um, from Luke and the others. He states, perhaps therefore the crucial prepositional phrase in Acts 21, 4 should be rendered while under the inspiration of the Spirit. See, when I went back and I read through those other examples that that is a common sense to that phrase, common usage. While under the inspiration of the Spirit, doesn't mean they're inerrant and it doesn't mean that what they said was prophetic. It's that they had received the prophecy and then they're giving an application of it that was wrong. He goes on to say, in his condensed statement, Luke has not distinguished between a prophecy regarding Paul's suffering at Jerusalem, doubtless given by the Tyrian disciples before their exhortation, that was delivered at the direction of the Spirit, and their own personal exhortation. That's what I've been saying, is that Luke isn't drawing it, it isn't going into enough detail to distinguish the prophecy they got from their application of it. He goes on to say that... um, the verse may be paraphrased thus, prompted by a prediction of the Holy Spirit, they told Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So that seems to be the best conclusion in comparing the passages. You've got, as I said, four options. One is that there's a contradiction. We throw that out. The second one is that Paul's right and these disciples are wrong. Uh, the third is that, that um, the disciples are right and Paul's wrong. And then the fourth, which was my number three, is that they've misapplied the message that they received. And that seems to be the best uh, solution and the one that almost everybody takes, as I said, with, about, um, ex- with the exception of two out of 62 that I looked at. Okay, verse 5. Verse 5 goes on to... Uh, describe Paul's departure. We see the same kind of intimate personal scene that we saw at the end of chapter 20, that when Paul was leaving Miletus, they all knelt down and they prayed with him. It's a time of, of, of close, intimate fellowship, a time of uh, that's very emotional, that Paul is loved by them. For so many of the people both at, at Miletus and the people here in Tyre, 
may have come to the Lord under Paul's ministry. They at least were fed from the word of God by the apostle Paul and taught by him, and they loved him profoundly and are so grateful for all that he taught them while he was there, and he's just there for seven days. And so they all follow him down to uh, down to the harbor. And they come down to the shore, and they all kneel down together and pray. And uh, before they talk, and they brought their whole families, the kids, the wives, everybody's there, and it's it's a time of close, intimate uh, fellowship as they say goodbye to the Apostle Paul. And of course, they're concerned because they've had this dire prediction about what he's going to face when he comes to Jerusalem. In verse six, we read, "When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship." and they returned home. Then we come to the next uh, day where they t- move from Tyre down to uh, Ptolemais. Now I'm going to back up. Let me pull my cursor back over here. And um, For some reason, this is not doing right. How weird. I want to go back to the map. There. Here's the map. Okay, we're down here on the coast. Tyre is here, and Ptolemaeus is here. It's just a very short sail, probably half a day, and Ptolemaeus was the Greek name for a harbor there that is later called Acre, maybe you called it Acre because it's spelled A-C-R-E, or Akko. This was a site of a, of a, a crusader castle, uh, during the time of the Crusades, there were some major battles that took place there. The, the uh, uh, restoration of that castle is just it, just phenomenal, just incredible. I got a chance to go there uh, summer before last uh, and and visit that, and it's just a phenomenal uh, place. And then um, and then it's from there that they apparently had moved on beyond there to go down to Caesarea, which is the largest harbor anywhere on the eastern end of the of the Mediterranean. Now, for some reason, I'm not able to. I'm going to have to just move through all these slides again. I don't, for some reason, it's not showing my little index, some kind of flaw in the program. Okay. Acts 21.8. On the next day, we, were, uh, <clears throat> we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea, this is Caesarea by the sea, built by Herod, magnificent port, uh, beautiful architecture was incredible. It's primarily a Gentile city. It housed uh, a cohort of, uh, of Roman soldiers, and it was not a, a, a Jewish city, but it was where the uh, later the proconsul had his palace. This is where Paul will spend two years uh, in prison. Uh, waiting for a ship that will eventually, waiting to eventually be sent to Rome. And he goes through a couple of interviews with the two different uh, proconsuls. So they come to Caesarea, and there we run into another one of the six. Remember the six that were chosen back in Acts 6, or the seven that were chosen, excuse me, back in Acts 6, including um, uh, Philip and Stephen to, to help the apostles in distributing uh, the financial aid to the uh, Hellenized uh, Jewish uh, widows. And Philip was one of them. He's the evangelist that uh, uh, that was beamed over to, um, to to witness to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then beamed away from there back to Caesarea. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit, uh, miraculously transported him. 
And he has taken up his residence, we know, for a number of years, and he raised his family in Caesarea, and he is known as the evangelist. This was his primary uh, ministry, was communicating the gospel, and there were uh, thousands that came to the Lord through his ministry. Eventually, uh, after the Roman, after the uh, uh, Jewish revolt, at the time of the Jewish revolt, they left, knowing what would ha- what would happen because of Jesus' predictions, and he they moved to uh, Asia to Heropolis, and this is where uh, he eventually died. But now he is there in Caesarea, one of the seven, and he hosts Paul in his home. Now we just have this short little. Insert here, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now, the emphasis on the fact that they're virgins would be simply an emphasis on the fact that they were unmarried as of yet. And then we have this, this little quick little statement that they prophesied. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean um, that they predicted the future? Does that mean that they functioned like an Old Testament prophet calling the nation to uh, obedience? Uh, Does that mean they kind of function like Agabus who shows up and every now and then God gave them special revelation? That's possible. But I'm going to suggest another option. This is an option that very few people ever bring up, but if you read through any of the uh, articles in some of the larger larger works discussing uh, uh, where, where they're going through lengthy uh, analysis of Old Testament words, you will find scholars coming to these passages, and it doesn't fit probably 80% of the use of the term prophet or prophet, but it reveals another meaning for the term that most people kind of ignore. And What's interesting is that other meaning, while it's not restricted to women, it is almost always used of women. One of the clearest ways in which we see the term prophecy used in this way is in 1 Chronicles 25, 1 through 3. Another one of those passages you haven't examined a lot. This passage is talking about David's development of the choirs that will sing in the temple once Solomon builds the temple. And we read in the first verse that, moreover, David and the captains of the army separated for the service some of the sons of Asaph. Now, if you're biblically literate, you know that Asaph authored some of the Psalms. So what David is doing is developing these choirs who will sing the Psalms. So uh, he separated out some for this, some of the sons of Asaph, of Heman and Jeduthun, who should prophesy with harps, stringed instruments, and cymbals. If you were to take the word prophecy out of that sentence, what English word would you put there in its place? Sing. Sing. Perform's not bad, but sing. Who would sing? That's what you do with harps, stringed instruments, and symbols. There's their singing here. It's the singing of the Psalms to God. And yet the verb that's used is the verb prophecy. And the number of the skilled men performing their service were, and then list some of those in the next verse, and that they were under the direction of Asaph who prophesied according to the order of the king. Now think about that phrase a minute. 
If you are a prophet in the classic understanding that God is revealing something to you, then the function of your gift of prophecy is not at the command of the king. It's not under your volition. It is under God's direction. But here we see that Asaph prophesies according to the order of the king. In context, in verse 1 and verse 3, it has to be the same idea of prophecy, which is related to music and the singing of psalms. Verse 3 says the same thing. Of Jedithan, the sons of Jedithan, Gedaliah, Zerai, Yeshai, etc., etc., under the direction of their father Jedithan, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Lord. Now, those two infinitives there, to give thanks and to praise the Lord, give more specificity and clarity to the meaning of the word prophesy. So here is a passage where prophes- the, the verb prophesy is related to giving thanks and praise, not foretelling the future or bringing an indictment against the nation Israel. So it's a whole new uh, sort, of co- sort of context there. We see a similar use, but not as clear a use, in a passage in First First uh, Samuel chapter chapter ten verses five and six. Now the context here is of the the anointing of Saul, the identification of Saul to be the first king of Israel, and he's being identified as such by by uh, Samuel the prophet. And we read that after he had after Samuel had identified Saul. Uh, Saul is, 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 uh, Samuel is directed and says, After that you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with, stringed instru- with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Okay? You sense something here? You read this and you, you scratch your head, you're going... You think of prophecy in the sense of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel, and it doesn't fit. Why, why, does, why is this verb used when they're coming down from this hill with all these musical instruments? Well, in light of what we saw in the Second Chronicles 25 passage, it makes sense that what they're doing is uh, prophecy is used here in the sense of giving thanks and praising God. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, that is, Saul, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, that's also a rather obscure verse, difficult to understand, but it becomes a little more clear if, uh, if the sense of prophesy here is that he's going to be worshiping God in terms of praise and thanksgiving uh, along with these other, other prophets. Now, having said that, If we take this conclusion that one of the major aspects or major meanings for the word prophecy is not foretelling, it's not bringing an indictment against Israel, but another meaning, a broad area of meaning, is giving thanks and singing praises to God, then it also fits when we go to two other key women in the Old Testament, Miriam and Deborah. Miriam, the sister of Moses, following the Exodus, she said she writes a hymn, 
a psalm that is sung in praise to God, a victory hymn that's given in Exodus chapter uh, 15. We read, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out with her with timbrels and with dances. And then there's going to be the singing of this this, uh, hymn of victory to God. And so the only time Miriam's identified as a prophetess in that same context, she's singing praises and giving thanks to God. Same thing happens with Deborah. Deborah is identified at the very beginning of the Deborah episode. In Judges 4.4, Deborah is called a prophetess. And that, and we're also told that she was judging Israel at that time. And you go through and you read the whole story about Deborah and Barak uh, going up against um, Sisera, the, uh, the the general of the Canaanites, and the defeat of Sisera. And Barak doesn't want to go into battle because he wants to have uh, Deborah go with him, showing that he just doesn't have quite the courage. He needs Deborah to hold his hand. When all of that whole battle scene is described in prose in Judges chapter 4, what do you find in Judges 5? Deborah writes a hymn of praise. And so all of Judges 5 is written in poetry form, and it's a psalm of praise to God. So here again, you have Deborah called a prophetess, and when you look at the context, it's associated with giving, singing of thanks to God and, and worship, worship to Him. So this is an interesting meaning, and I think a significant one that is often overlooked for the meaning of prophet, and it, as I've said, it's not restricted to women, but when women are mentioned as prophetesses, beyond just Huldah was another one mentioned as a prophetess, and that's all we know, Huldah the prophetess. No content, no description, nothing like that. But when we have two women identified as prophetesses in the Old Testament and we're given any information about them, that they're, they're writing hymns and singing praise to God. And that that is clearly a meaning for that term that is used in First Samuel chapter 10 as well as Second Chronicles chapter 25. So that leads us to a conclusion that I think is fairly well based on the text. We don't have enough information to be excessively dogmatic about it, but that is that women who are identified as prophetesses function in that role in the realm of music and writing of psalms and singing uh, psalms of thanks and praise to God. We don't have any examples of, of uh, Philip's daughters doing anything, so it's, it's somewhat hypothetical, but anything is hypothetical. Anything else anybody else says is just as hypothetical because we don't have uh, any, any hardcore information given. But I think we can extrapolate from some information that we do have uh, have in the in the Old Testament. As we go on in Acts 21, we're told that they stayed uh, uh, several days, not many days. Many days would be more than a week. Ta- uh, Paul's on a tight time schedule, and he arrives on May the 20th, and he leaves. Uh, we can extrapolate it that he left on the 25th because it took a couple of days to get to Jerusalem. Then he had a couple of days of meetings in Jerusalem before they end up uh, at, at the day of Pentecost. So uh, they stayed there uh, four or five days. And during this time, Agabus, who we heard from before in Acts chapter 11, comes down from Judea. And we've already discussed this, that he has a, um, 
has a, a, a visual aid, an object lesson for Paul to demonstrate that he's going to be bound. Now, let's talk about the prophecy just a second. He's stating this in a somewhat general way. He says, shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles? Now, there are some who would say that, wait a minute, the Jews aren't the ones. If you read the fulfillment later on in Acts 20, in Acts uh, 22, and the end of chapter, or excuse me, at the end of chapter 21, it's the Gentile, the Roman commander in 2133 that binds his hands. So some would say, well, Agabus didn't quite get it right. Agabus is talking about who instigates the binding. It's the Jews that instigate the binding, even though it's the Roman centurion that actually puts the chains on him. He does it because at the instigation of the Jews, just as the Jews were the ones who instigated the arrest of Jesus, it was the Romans who carried out that, but, but, and both are involved in the process of the crucifixion. So he is predicting that when Paul goes to Jerusalem, uh, he will be bound and given over into the hands of the Gentiles, just as Jesus was. But Paul is not going to uh, give up on this. Verse 12, now when we heard these things, we see the reaction from Paul's companions, and uh, they, they, they don't want Paul to go to Jerusalem. But Paul is steadfast. Paul, just as Jesus was focused on going to Jerusalem, that no matter what opposition he faced, no matter what it might cost him, he knew that was his destiny, that was God's will. The same is true for Paul. He's not going to let circumstances, no matter how negative or unpleasant they might be, uh, prevent him from fulfilling God's direction in his life. And so... Uh, he goes He goes forward, and they continue to plead with him not to go to Jerusalem. Verse 13, we read, Paul finally says, Why do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? That's a nice English idiom. The Greek literally says, pounding on my heart. They're beating on his heart. It's a similar idiom to the English, breaking my heart. They are... Uh, beating up on him emotionally. It's very hard for him. They're appealing to him, and he loves them. There's this intimacy there, and he doesn't want to uh, disappoint them, but he knows the right course of action, so he's not going to let the emotions of the time uh, uh, keep him from going to Jerusalem. So he says, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. This is not the kind of statement somebody who is out of fellowship in carnality is going to make. He's focused on the mission that the Lord has given him. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. So at this point, uh, his friends, everybody there realizes this is God's will, and they all accept it uh, and relax and go forward. So what we see is that God's will allows and permits us to go through undeserved suffering. The purpose is to learn to trust him, and we, we don't run away from it. We need to recognize it, that uh, the principle of 1 Corinthians uh, 10.13, that God is not going to put us in a position of testing that is beyond our ability, not our ability in the flesh, but our ability in terms of walking by the Spirit. God's going to sustain us in whatever situation or circumstances we may be in. Not that we can avoid it, 
but that we can handle it as we walk through uh, those difficult circumstances. So the purpose is to learn to trust him. So Paul is now on his way to Jerusalem, verse 15, and after those days we packed, Luke is still there, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. This will be Paul's fifth visit to Jerusalem since he became a believer And we can date this pretty accurately because we know when Pentecost occurred and we can follow the the the, uh, chronology of this passage, that this would have been on May 25th in the year 57 uh, A.D. And so it takes two days. It's about 60 miles to Jerusalem. They're traveling along the road to Jerusalem, and they are accompanied by a, a Hellenistic Jew, uh, Manasin of Cyprus, who was one of the early disciples. Now, that probably means that he was saved in Acts 2 or Acts 3. It could mean maybe that he was even a, a disciple of Jesus before that, but in the language that Luke uses in, in Acts, it probably means that he was one of the 3,000 or the 4,000 that were saved in those first couple of days of the church age. And he is going to host Paul and his entourage in his home in Jerusalem. And so verse 17 states, And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now we'll stop there because the next day there's going to be a fascinating conference between Paul and James, the leader of the of the church in Jerusalem, and the elders, that is the other pastors, in Jerusalem in order to prepare things for Paul's visit, knowing that there's going to be conflict, knowing that there's going to be opposition, knowing the lies that are already being told about Paul, they have to prepare, set their strategy, determine how they're going to handle this in the coming days. And so next time we'll pick up in verse 18. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be encouraged by the example of Paul that that he was not going to be uh, swayed by uh, arguments related to safety or comfort, uh, but he was going to press on to observe the the um, <clears throat> the mission that God that you gave him, and that is true for us that we need to recognize that we're placed where we are in our employment in our families in the hobbies and recreational activities wherein we, we, we operate and the things we enjoy, we're placed there by you for, to, for the opportunity to be witnesses and to um, give the gospel to those around us. Father, we continue to pray for our Good News Club tomorrow. We pray that things will go well there, that the truth will be clear, and that those kids will be responsive and uh, not so restless, and it will be the beginning of a truly remarkable ministry that we have in this community. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.